Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 10. Today, I'm going to talk about a book and some ideas in one of its sections, A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. But before we do that, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Let's talk about some books. Books in business. Oh, he said it. He I thought it. maybe he wouldn't. That's 10 episodes in a row where he is. He said that. That might be the last one. Uh, okay, so what I've been reading is Basics of Hebrew Accents by Mark Furtado. Hebrew Accents? Hebrew Accents. Is that like your New York accent that you don't have? Yes, I did grow up in New York, but upstate New York, so I do not have a Z <laughs> New York City so, accent. So what's a Hebrew accent sound like? An accent. I'll stop talking. <laughs> An accent. An accent. Are you talking about like how does a Jewish person sound? <laughs> or a Hebrew. Or like, yeah. Hebrew, yeah. A Hebrew accent, a Southern accent, a New York accent. It's not, it's not that kind of accent at all. That's not what they're doing or talking about or whatever. We're being say. silly. Yes. <laughs> and not doing a very good job at and it. And probably the listener has no idea or doesn't give a care because this is a Hebrew thing. But... You know, I just want to encourage you to think and to uh, read maybe a little bit harder books. And if we do have some out there that are that have had Hebrew, I would recommend this book. The Hebrew accents are do help understand the Hebrew texts. The yeah, accents are there for three reasons. One is to emphasize or to to show the stress on a syllable. So, for example, do you emphasize the first syllable of a word or the last syllable of a word? Um, pakad or pakad. All right, so do you accent the beginning of the word or the end of the word? And that can actually change the meaning of a word sometimes. Some languages are very accentual. I believe Chinese is an illustration of a language that um, where you emphasize a word changes the meaning of the word. Hebrew has some of that as well. For example, there's the word uh, shavu. And if it's shavu, it's they returned. If it's shavu, it's they carried captive. You can kind of see the very different meanings between (laughs) Shavu and Shavu. So that's kind of uh, Hebrew accents affect the stress, what what syllable that you emphasize, also the um, sense of the meaning, and then also uh, they actually sang the Hebrew text. So some of the symbols, they have a melodic uh, function. Anyway, that's a little bit about the Hebrew accents. Accents in Hebrew mean more than accents in Greek, correct? Yeah, I think so. In Greek, there are he, there are accent marks that tell you what stress, but t- there's no real. There's like two words that if they have the accent or don't have the accent mark, it changes the definition. But it's really an un. There is accents, but it's not to the same degree of meaning that you're going to experience in Hebrew. Sure. And my brother used to say the if you put the wrong the put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, it can change the whole meaning. It would be really interesting to think about languages when something like that would develop and then kind of fall away? Like, why in yeah. biblical Greek does it really not make that big of an issue? Yeah. Or it's not, it's not that big of an issue? And maybe early on or later on? And imagine, different. like, speaking a language like that and how much more mental effort that would be. Okay. Do you want me to go or do you want to go? Me go. I have been reading a couple of different books. Mere Discipleship by Alistair McGrath. It is a, it's a good book that talks about certain principles of, of discipleship. And there's a section in there where he talks about habits of the mind. And he gets into repentance, which is a really, like, thinking through, like, 
that idea of the changing of the mind for a believer and how that's kind of a, it is the foundational idea to something that's happening within the mind of a believer. And just for time's sake, I'm not going to open it and crack into that uh, quote, but it's in, I think, chapter three, and it's the habits of the mind. But It's a good, a good discussion about repentance and transformation, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But yeah. Very nice. Um, the book I was, thought we should talk about is a book called The Intellectual Life by A.G. Certeange, which I'm not French. But if you looked at that and you're not French, it's spelled Certelanges or Certelanges. He's a French Catholic scholar. And also, word, I had to read it for a grad class. And it's all about thinking and studying and pursuing knowledge and understanding at a consistent level. He shares a lot of great tidbits, really interesting stuff. He's a scholar of Thomas Aquinas. But there's just one little tidbit that would be worth thinking through for everyone. He says that if you want to have expertise in an area or if you want to have a, a profitable intellectual life, you can basically do that two hours a day. Which sounds funny if you think like I'm going to be this expert by giving myself two hours a day to study a topic. But he says you need two things. You need to guard that time zealously and you need to pursue your study ardently. It's like really work hard. And so I was thinking about this and let's say... Monday through Friday, you got up two hours early with the purpose of studying whatever the topic is that you want. Two times five is 10 hours. So every week you'd be studying something for 10 hours. And if you did that every week of the 52 weeks of the year, that would be 520 hours. So my thought is, what do you currently study for 520 hours a year? Do you study your favorite celebrity or your favorite hobby or your favorite streaming service, or maybe you just have a really good relationship with your closest friends. It was really helpful for me to think, yeah, can I carve out an extra hour, half hour, two hours a day? So two hours a day, that was a neat little principle. I thought it was worth sharing. Two hours is more time than we think a lot of times too. It is. If you can give a really good focus two hours, I think you can get a lot more study than you realize. Potential Hebrew students, I tell them, listen, just think through, you know, three nights a week, you need to give two hours a yep. night to this. And then they're like, oh, that's not hard. And I'm like, okay, think about your night and what do you do right now? Yep. And what are you going to have to sacrifice? Yep. And then they start thinking. And then it's a little harder. And then they don't <laughs> enroll. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it really does. I remember with Hebrew, just get into a little bit of an anecdote here. <clears throat> As I was starting my seminary education, I was very, very set on having the best grade point I could. And at this point, when I got to Hebrew... I'd probably taken 20 or 30 credits or so of my Master Divinity program, and I was I was banned a thousand. I had a perfect 4.0, and Hebrew ruined it. <laughs> it, does, it does now, that for a lot of people. <laughs> that did not. It wasn't because Hebrew was overly difficult. It wasn't because it was just so strange and out of the ordinary. I had taken Greek before. I had taken German in high school. And I had I was familiar with learning languages, and, and conceptually, I grasped a lot in that first semester in Hebrew Grammar 1. The problem was exactly what Tim just said. I was not willing to take the time hmm. in one specific area, and that was to learn vocab. And so I vowed in Hebrew Grammar 2 to Dr. Lowe, I will never miss another vocab word. He didn't. And the streak lives until I got Impressive. to my Aramaic final 
and I missed. That was surprising. There's easy words that I just like baffooed, you know. It happens. But not to exalt myself, you know, I was I was a horrible student that first semester. But what it took was every day I would get up and I would at the time I was not as experienced in brewing coffee. I would brew a pot of Raging Bull in oh, my Mister Coffee coffee pot. Such good. And mm. I would get my cup and I would sit down and I would not do anything else until I could go through all of my Hebrew vocab without missing one. And you think, man, that's crazy. Yes. Yes, it is. But man, did I know Hebrew vocab and that those principles have stuck with me through multiple other classes of study. It really does take, if you want to be an expert, you have to dedicate time. And I wasn't spending two hours a day doing it. Maybe like 30, 40 minutes, but, but even that 30, 40 minutes paid off mm -hmm. big time. It, it, for, seven, eight years yep. of, of discipline. With that, we'll transition into our main content for the podcast. What are we going to talk about, Charlie? We're going to talk about, it's the book is A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. It's a very popular book. And the structure and design of this book is that he, he makes a good case for the fact that Christians need to regularly rehearse the gospel truths and one of the ways he kind of builds that argument is he looks at Paul's epistles and says, look, you know, usually those epistles are structured in a, in a format where the opening chapters rehearse the gospel. He theologically explains dimensions of the gospel, and he even expresses intent as he writes to come and preach the gospel to people that we know are already believers. And so he, he makes a good case that we need to, to use a phrase that's popular to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. There's one particular section that he gets into, I believe, number six. It's a short little reading, like it's meant to be a daily dose of the gospel for the believer. It's actually, it's, it's number five, and it's just two paragraphs. And the title is Transformed by Glory. And the whole point here is that we see the glory of God revealed in the gospel message and as I daily rehearse the gospel to myself, it has a transforming effect. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is, first, this is usually not a very specific, intentional point of discussion in books. Like the, the transformation is one way of saying it. Sanctification is another. Like the real changing of my heart to be different, to be like Christ. I will... That is always something that needs to be emphasized more, or maybe just say appropriately. I love when I got to this section, and this is great, he actually even uses the passage that I would use to really lay a foundation for New Testament sanctification, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he references twice 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, which says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. I love this emphasis that he makes on the transformation. One thing I would like to discuss and maybe outline, we might have some discussion about it, is how I'm not exactly sure if I would explain it the same way that he does. And he's framing it in... I mean, the book's name is a gospel primer. He references the need to gaze at the glory of God through the gospel daily. But I would actually 
as I walk through 2 Corinthians 3, I would emphasize that that's not really what Paul is saying accomplishes the transformation. Now, is it wrong to say that you know you focus on the gospel and it changes you? Well, no, that's true. But one of the things that we should always strive for is to describe our experience in biblical terminology and to properly understand what the text teaches so that I can properly apply it to myself and communicate it to someone else. So if you're looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 at these verses, he's actually drawing upon a very deep and rich illustration of the veil from the Old Testament. He's going to pull from this story where Moses put a veil over his face. And the reason Moses put a veil on his face was that the people did not want to see the transformation of his face from the glory of God. So there was a barrier between the glory as revealed in Moses' face and the people. Paul says that that same veil remains. He says this in verse 14. The same veil remains to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, because that veil is taken away in Christ. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The comparison is that there was a barrier then between the people and the glory, and it was a physical veil on Moses' face. He's saying here today there is still a veil, but it's not on faces. It's on people's hearts. People are spiritually dead. They need Christ to change them, to regenerate them. And there's a statement there in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the gospel, does it transform? Yes, it changes the heart. It brings me to new life. You look at verse 16, and it's a very interesting word there. He says, kurios, Lord. When one turns to the Lord, the veil, the veil that is on the heart, is removed. If you stopped reading at verse 16, and all you had was the previous context, the Lord must be Christ. Back in verse 14, it says the veil is taken away in Christ. It's mentioned by name. So you would be correct to read or to maybe recite verse 16, but when one turns to Christ, the veil is removed. Now this is where I would diverge just a little bit from the gospel primer's explanation. What happens next is not a continual daily recitation of that same truth over and over. He actually makes a contrasting point here. Verse 17, now the kurios, but the kurios, depending on how you translate it, either now or but if it's a contrast. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's where we get into verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, being born again, regenerated, because we turned to Christ as our Lord. We turned to Christ, learning the truth of the gospel. We now have a new stewardship of life. We've been indwelt with the third member of the Trinity. That spirit resides in me. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want. It's not freedom from you know, rules, regulations. It's freedom from sinful desire. That I actually now have a new capacity within me. Galatians 5 says it this way. You need to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The freedom is that I can yield 
to this new controlling power, which is God himself, but God the Spirit, not Christ. Now, we might discuss this. How do you flesh out the difference between saying the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, you know, it, it is the same God, but they're different people. And so, again, the way I would diverge is when you think about this, you want to think in exegetically sound and theologically sound terminology. Is it a daily recitation of the gospel that transforms me? No, not necessarily. Because the unveiled face in 318 has already happened. Yes. What is happening in verses 17 and 18 is now there's this new freedom in me because I have the Spirit. And it's now I'm beholding the glory of God and the Spirit is transforming me. And I would insert here, the transforming process is equal with the walk of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians and in Galatians. And so is it bad or wrong to okay, I need to preach the gospel to myself today and then God will use that to change me. No, that's not wrong. But I think there's another step of understanding here. What's going to transform me today is walking in the freedom of the gospel to yield my heart, its sinful desires, its motives, to the spirit that now indwells me. And as I am yielding to that spirit, what is he doing? He is using the word, the glory of God, to make me into that same glory. I mean, it is admittedly kind of splitting hairs. I loved reading that. You know, I I try to read one of those every day from the Gospel Primer. That's what I'm doing right now. And that was a great reminder to me. But I'll just take it a couple more steps in in, in understanding it from this text, what's going on. I turn to Christ through the Gospel. The veil is removed. Now, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and there's freedom where the Spirit is. And so I walk in the Spirit, and I demonstrate, and I apply this new stewardship, this freedom of the Spirit, by yielding to Him, to walking in the Spirit. And as I do that, what happens? I am transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, as the ESV says. So what do you guys think about that? So what you'd be saying is, if someone wants to grow in their Christian life, it's not, it's not a bad thing to remember what Christ did. It's, it's like when we have communion at church, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel, what happened, what Christ did for us, what changed us initially, what gave us new life. But if a person wants to grow, you're saying if all they do is recite the gospel every day, that's actually not what this text is talking about. Yes. And so it would be better for them to understand that so that they can turn to other texts that will actually help them to learn to grow in sanctification. A former pastor of mine would say it this way. There's the gospel of salvation. Jesus died for you and he rose again. He offers new life. There's also a good news of sanctification. And that would be what's here, that you're free Hmm. and you can walk in the spirit. And if you do, he's going to make you like his son. And that's not just some outward conformity to a set of rules. It's a literal change of what Hmm. I love and what I want in my life. And, that, and he would call that the gospel of sanctification. And I think we maybe sometimes split them up in ways that we should not. I mean, what is my responsibility today? Do I need to preach the gospel to myself? Or do I need to preach sanctification to myself? 
do I need to yield to the spirit of God or, or do I need to learn what walking in the spirit really is when I, you know, every day I rehearse the gospel to myself. I, I know Jesus died for me and I know that he rose again. Using that as a facilitator to yield to the spirit would be the goal. You know, if I'm going to rehearse the gospel to myself, I would say, yes, because he died for me and he gave me this new life, I have a responsibility today to be transformed. And that means I have to walk in the spirit. So I think of the person who is told, preach the gospel yourself every day and want earnestly wants to grow mm-hmm. and does that and and doesn't the, the growth doesn't come and then there's confusion. And so what you're offering is a help to understand yeah, remember what Christ did, but then learn from the spirit, learn to walk according to those new desires, learn to say no to the old desires. That's really helpful. And Tim, you brought up earlier that there's that passage in Hebrews Oh, about uh, the milk of the word and the meat, yes. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so are we just constantly drinking the milk and we need to um, uh, increase our diet uh, and, and chew on some meatier things? So, yeah, um, I think that might be one, one of those uh, applicational points. As you were talking even there, though, it made me think of like Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I think there is a value to reflecting upon the gospel and that it is self-abasing and puts us in our proper place as humans. The reflection, on the, the reflection of the gospel is the basis for Christian service. That's what we have in like Romans 12, 1. So, uh, I mean, I agree with you that there's we need to be eating meatier things, and, and um, but then... There is also that element that there is some refreshment that can be ascertained from the gospel and reflecting upon the mercies of God. Can we maybe say it like this? I remember, so to go back to Hebrew, actually, I remember taking Hebrew from Dr. Little and I had a a wrong practice. I didn't study my vocab enough. And so I would get really confused about Hebrew. And right when a test was getting ready to happen, I would spend eight hours on a Saturday learning all my Hebrew vocab. I should have had known by then. I would do okay on the test. And then the next week of class, it's like things made sense. I could understand Dr. Little. And really what was happening is I was just keeping the basics in my mind. But memorizing the vocab was for a purpose of progressing in growth in the class. So it sounds like the gospel, it is foundational and you can't forget it. If you forget the way the gospel works, you're going to be hampered. But you remember the gospel every day so that you can remember to give your life over to God. Is that like a fair way to think about it? Like kind of like the grammar of a language? Yeah, but in that, in that language right there, to remember mm-hmm. to give my life over to God. So does that mean that I have to resubmit myself to Christ every day? If you've turned back to self-will, probably. Or do I need to submit myself to the Spirit every day? Because I would, I would oh, contend I that 2 Corinthians 3 is not saying submit to Christ again. It's saying you need to submit to the oh. Lord that's the Spirit now. And that, that's, the, that's the theological okay. difference I would draw. It's like, it isn't, oh, thank you, Christ. It, you do that. Thankfulness mm-hmm. of the gospel is a daily thing. You're you definitely, should, no matter what anyone listens, you're not no, saying. No, no, no. You're not saying that. But theologically, it's not a resubmitting to the lordship of Christ daily that, is, that is talked about in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. At the end of verse 18, he, re- he said it again, the Lord that is the Spirit mm-hmm. He's emphasizing the one that's transforming you is God, the Spirit, and not turning to Christ. That's back in 
you know, that, yes, Christ is the one that saves me. He's the Savior. He regenerates. He uses the Spirit. And, you know, what theological difference is there between yielding to the, to Christ as my Lord and yielding to the Spirit? They, they're the same thing. Uh-huh. But just trying to teach the Scripture well, the end of Second Corinthians 3 is not talking about yielding to Christ or preaching the gospel to myself. It's actually talking about yielding to the Spirit, walking in the freedom of mm-hmm. the Lord, the yeah. Spirit. Okay, that makes more Very sense nice. to me. Yeah. And that I remember the first time I noticed most translations in verse 17 use the word now. Yep. It has that temporal idea to it. Uh-huh. You, you flush that out a little bit more and you look at that conjunction. It's probably a contrasting conjunction. Well, it's death, so. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the most common particle in the Greek New Testament. But at the beginning of verse 16, there's a very specific word that says when. When one turns to the Lord, so there is a, there's a timing aspect. When one turns to Christ, veil removed. And then however you take it, and the Lord is the Spirit, that is a thematic change from the Lord in verse 16. Because the Lord in 16 is Christ. And now the Lord is the Spirit. So that would be a good piece of internal evidence as you think through the text that would lead you to a contrasting conjunction. Now, I, I could be swayed on that. I'm not a, Andy's the Greek professor. That's where I would think that one through about why you would contrast. And then that changes the way you look at verse 18 as well. So, Charlie, let's do this as we end. What are some day to day actions? that we would take in our walk with Christ and our walk under the Spirit's control. What should we do differently because of what you've helped us to understand? I want to grow today, and now I know I need to remember the gospel, but the key to my growth is submission to the Spirit. What does that look like? Yeah, so we've talked about Galatians 5 before, but there's there's a series of questions. It's not really a series of questions but it walks through kind of a flow of who I am as a person. And ultimately, what's difficult about walking in the Spirit is discerning if I am or if I am not. I've often said to students, would it be great if there was an app on the phone that would just give me a push (laughs) notification that told me, like, the screen goes red, a big ding, and it's like, oh, oh, okay, let's stop our conversation right now. I'm actually not in the spirit any longer. Let me get back. And there's like maybe a meter that tells you like you're praying and you're like, look, okay, I'm back in the spirit. We're good. You know, and then you keep, you keep progressing. That's not like that. Life is not like that. But there are ways that God shows me and, and ways that I can evaluate whether or not I am or am not under the control of the spirit. One of those ways is by asking questions like these. If I was under the spirit's control, would I have done that? Or another way of rephrasing the same question. Would the Spirit of God produce mm. that action? Mm. That's really good. Would the Spirit of God produce those words? Mm. And words and actions are things everybody sees. And usually people can see sin. It's, it's evident. Galatians 5 says mm. that. What people can't see is your attitude, your motives, your emotions. You extend the question from your outer man to your inner man. Would the Spirit of God produce those thoughts? Would the Spirit of God produce that attitude? And then at the very core, would the Spirit of God love that, want that, desire that? Yeah, I was thinking Mm. desires. Is this desire of the Spirit or of the flesh? And when you can recognize, oh, hey, that desire is actually my flesh. Again, Galatians 5, the flesh and the Spirit are contrary. 
They're opposed. I can't be under the control of both. So if I discern today, I want to grow. I want to be walking in the Spirit. And at some point, God puts a pressure into my life, and I discern, oh, hey, that is not the Spirit of God at work within me. I have to repent. Mm. I have to turn in prayer and say, Lord, I'm clearly not controlled by your spirit right now. Would you cleanse me of my sin so I can walk under his control, under the spirit's control? And so it's a part of your prayer life. It's a part of your devotional life, evaluating if I'm truly walking in the spirit. And that's the freedom. Yes. The freedom to be able to do just that. Because if you didn't have the spirit, you couldn't do those things. But the evidence that you have the Spirit is that freedom that we have in Christ. And we're, mm. we're definitely going long. <laughs> but not only did you not have the freedom to submit, you were completely blind to know that there was a problem. No one without the veil removed even knows that they're walking in the flesh. They don't even think that's a problem. No unbeliever's like, am I walking in the Spirit today? Like, And genuinely caring about that. They're like, eh, just being me, you know. Mm. That happens. You know, like they, they're the unbeliever without the veil removed by Christ cannot discern the things of the spirit of God. They have no idea if they're walking in the flesh's control. Mm. They don't see it as usually don't see that as a problem. And, and even if they were to perceive that their own problems or sin were an issue, they would have no power to then rein it into control because they don't have the spirit. It would, that would be an, uh, an endeavor of the flesh to then correct themselves externally. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.